This is Ed Mazur, Chairman of the City Club of Chicago. Our program today, Chicago's $838 million shortfall, hard choices ahead. We had three panelists today. Scott Wagaspak, who's the alderman of Chicago's 32nd Ward. That includes parts of the Bucktown, Logan Square, Wicker Park neighborhoods. First elected in 2007, Alderman Wagaspak has been a leading independent voice in the city council, often challenging both the daily and manual administrations on issues of transparency, finance, public safety, and public education. Our second panelist, Carol Spain, the director of S&P Global Ratings in the U.S. Public Finance Group at S&P Global Ratings. She leads the company's Global's public pension team. She currently serves as the primary analyst for the city of Chicago and the states of Illinois, Florida, and Wisconsin. Our final panelist, Ted Dabrowski, who's the president of WirePoints. He has a very strong knowledge of finance policy and government based on a 16-year international career in finance and management. For six years, he served as the vice president of public policy and spokesperson at the Illinois Policy Institute. All of the panelists agreed that we will have to see structural change going on in the city of Chicago to deal with this budget shortfall. All said that Mayor Lori Lightfoot's first budget seems reasonable. Local fees, raising them, looking for the state for assistance, are much better than raising property taxes. However, there will be continued debt refinancing. That is not that uncommon. It's not the best practices the candidates agreed. We will look at structural reform, such as attempts to close the budget gaps by changing the structure of the city of Chicago, attacking corruption, lack of transparency, having an inspector general with oversight powers, and having new committee chairs. A new chief risk officer has been appointed, and that took that issue away from the finance committee, formerly headed by Alderman Ed Burke, that had no oversight. Now there will be oversight in this area. All three panelists agreed that the issues of cannabis, casino, and real estate transfer are all reliant on the state legislature. If the state legislature does not act on behalf of the city of Chicago, there will have to be some severe contingency plans. All in all, the panelists agreed the city certainly faces hard choices at attempts to cope with an $838 million shortfall. All right. So thank you so much for having me today. Uh, So the title of this panel today is uh, Chicago's $838 million shortfall, hard choices ahead. And that's certainly true. So to put that into perspective, in comparison with the city's budget, that's about 20% of revenues. This is a historic budget gap that the mayor and the city are facing. And we think that, just generally speaking, uh, the mayor's budget proposal last week is a reasonable approach to addressing such a large budget gap. Uh, in her proposal, she's included approximately $313 million of one-time uh, you know, savings or revenues in the budget, which leaves the city still really, I would say, quite deeply structurally imbalanced, about a 7% gap, which... Is, is large for municipalities, but we say reasonable because such with such a large budget gap, it would be difficult to close that with entirely structural solutions in one year. 
And the mayor has also identified that the city has a plan to address the entirety of its structural budget gap by fiscal 2022, which includes funding its pension plans on an actuarial basis. And so the way she set up her budget is it buys the city some time to look at structural solutions over the next year and the following year to really close the gap. But again, you know, we don't consider a 7% gap and still not funding actuarial pension contributions to be best practices for a city, but given this situation, it can make sense. And what we're really looking for as a rating agency is, is not just the budget proposal itself, but whether or not the city will actually be able to implement this plan going forward. So it's not just will the city be able to achieve some of the revenue sources that it's looking for in, in upcoming budgets, whether that be casino revenues or the graduated, or graduated real estate transfer tax as proposed, but if those don't happen, will there be a willingness not only on the mayor's part, but also council's part to actually implement a contingency plan. So, you know, at this point, we're, we're kind of waiting and seeing what happens. We think it's a reasonable plan, but we need to actually see action. Um, just a few, few points on the budget before I pass it on. I think, you know, we think that the revenues that the mayor has proposed, and I suppose uh, you might have more to say on, on how feasible these are with council, but, you know, compared with an alternative of really significantly raising property taxes. We think that of a mix of local fees and looking to the to the state regarding the casino revenues in the future is a mm -hmm. is a balanced approach that's probably more likely to get support and be able to implement than some of the other a more painful uh, alternative for Chicago taxpayers like a property tax increase. And we've also looked at some of the city's savings measures, and we think that really based on the detail that we've been provided and the time frame that it would take to actually implement some of these efficiencies that the mayor's identified, it's possible that, that the, the assumptions could be realistic. And then another thing I wanted to highlight, too, is uh, the budget proposal includes about $200 million in upfront savings from uh, a debt uh, refinancing and, and just from having been in the public finance sphere for, for many years now. This isn't that uncommon. I mean, it's it's not like it's a best practice to do upfront savings like that, but this is something that bonds can be refinanced in a way um, based on um, kind of market trends and rates and the way you structure your debt service payments, that this is something that could be executed. Uh, and in terms of one-shots, we think it's positive that the city is going with things like uh, maybe a debt service refunding that doesn't hurt it over the long term, so it doesn't it really increase overall debt costs or drawing on reserves or extending the amortization period. I mean, these are sorts of things that would hurt the city over the longer term. While this prolongs the city's structural imbalance for another year, uh, leaves it, 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 at least it's not impairing the city going forward. It's really more of buying it time to get structural solutions going forward. Um, so with that, maybe I'll, I'll that is probably my time, so I'll pass on the mic. Well, thank you, Carol. Thank you very much. Um, Alderman Wagaspak. Thank you, Ed. Um, well, thank you first for having me here today. Uh, you know, we are looking at a lot of structural reforms that Carol mentioned, uh, refinancing with the STSC, which was a sales tax corporation, 
Uh, I voted against that a couple years ago because I felt that we weren't seeing as much transparency as we needed to on that deal. Um, and we were you know, looking at it in terms of it's a, it could be a 50-50 structure that would move forward. As it turns out, uh, we believe it turned out to be a pretty good deal for the city. And as Carol mentioned, working through the refinancing on that, we're not talking about a scoop and toss. We're not talking about extending the maturity dates. And we're not increasing the debt service costs in upcoming years or in the long term on that. So the city bringing back money into the corporate budget on that is actually going to uh, help close the budget gap. It's a it's a one-time uh, deal, and we don't want to. We want to make sure that we're not doing too many one-time or one-offs for this budget um, as we as we move forward. But um, it turns out that it has been a pretty good issue to work around. And I think Ted and I might have had a discussion about that a couple years ago um, as we were talking through some of the budget items and some of the finances. Mm -hmm. um, what hasn't really been talked about in this budget as much, I think, publicly has been some of the changes that have been happening since the mayor took over. And I think it's important for people to realize that for the first time in many years, we've had a mayor come into office who is willing to challenge the structural problems throughout every one of our departments, the city council, and in our sister agencies. And as you can see right now, uh, really tackling the uh, corruption, the lack of transparency within the city council has been difficult, but it has been a sea change in the way that we're operating. The fact that we now have an inspector general uh, with oversight over our committees, uh, the fact that I think we have new committee chairs in, like myself, we're making serious changes to the way that we do business in the city council. Uh, will hopefully transform throughout uh, the rest of the city and the work that the mayor is doing. The um, the mayor has also hired or created the office of chief risk officer. Um, as you know, the finance committee used to control the workers' comp program, a hundred million dollar program uh, every year that had very little oversight over it. Actually, no oversight. And the initial audit showed that there was a lot that the city could do to transform that program. That $100 million program will hopefully be reduced, as some other cities have done, by uh, basically sending it out for an outside audit. And we now have Grant Thornton overseeing that work instead of uh, one committee that uh, was doing a very poor job at it. So I'm hoping that we'll see long-term uh, restructuring that uh, workers' comp program as well. The... Um, the other thing that the mayor has shifted on as well is doing a full accounting of all our settlements and judgments, mostly from the police department. And as you've seen in the past, that, uh, that number has grown into the hundreds of millions over the last 10 years. I think it's $600 million in terms of judgments and settlements. That's just something that's not sustainable for the city. So part of having the chief risk uh, officer in there, Tamika Puckett, is to make sure that we're focusing on the reforms that we need in the police department to draw down on those settlements and make sure that we're moving in the right direction there. The, uh, and then making sure that we show it in the city budget instead of covering up or borrowing funds to pay for settlements, I think will be a sea change as well in the way that we finance our year-to-year uh, -year budget. The, a couple of the other things that she's looking at, um, police overtime has been a big issue. It's been ranging over $100 million the last several years. It's one of the highest in the United States. And I think if we can restructure that, make sure that we have actual oversight over the police department and bring those numbers down, that is what taxpayers want to see. They want to see us actually tackling the issues that have been a systemic problem for decades that have really drawn down on our ability to do our day-to-day -day work in the city. 
Um, as Carol mentioned, the mayor is looking at a couple of issues, cannabis, uh, the casino, the real estate transfer tax, all things that either have to happen in the veto session or the spring session. But it's really reliant on our state legislators and the governor to push those things forward. If they're not able to get them, we are in a bit of a pickle, but the mayor's staff, the finance director, the budget director have been working on contingency plans. Um, we talked about those in our first session of the city finance uh, committees yesterday where we were uh, uh, basically hearing for the first time publicly what her budget is and how they are representing it. Um, I think we're going to see those contingency plans come forward at the end of the sessions in about two weeks because they are important to make sure that if we can't get those things done at the state that we have a backup plan. A lot of these issues will be uh, there are tackling them in the short term, but I think if you look in the long term, uh, the mayor is committed to these changes. They're not one-offs. She really wants to see us change the way the city has operated for decades, and I, um, I feel that working with her and all the people on her staff, um, again, for the first time that I've been alderman for 12 years, these are things that um, are important to a lot of us as aldermen, are important to my taxpayers, my constituents, and I'm sure to all of you. So we're hoping to see um, see how this budget turns out, but I, I think it's one of the best ones I've seen, despite the fact that we have an $838 million budget gap, we, will, we are tackling some of those systemic issues for the first time ever. Well, thank you, Alderman Wagaspak. Um, Ted Drabowski, your comments, observations. Thank you. I'm going to try to give the, what I'd call the fiscal realist point of view on this, and uh, I don't think anybody would wish the amount of uh, deficits and debts that Chairman here and uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot have to tackle. They're huge numbers. But I would like to start by saying that talking about the city's 2020 budget and the $838 million is really the wrong way to approach Chicago's crisis. Um, it seems to me that every year everybody treats this, this one-year budget deficit in Chicago as, as the crisis, the thing we've got to solve. And it becomes very important and we eventually patch it somehow. Um, and there was a big sigh of relief when Lori Lightfoot and team managed to put together a plan without a property tax hike. And that was the big achievement, right? But, but Chicago's, well, I, I would argue that trying to solve the one-year problem in Chicago is like trying to give an intensive care patient aspirin, right? It doesn't solve the problems. Chicago's problems are much larger than one year. They are multi-year they are multi-government, and they're structural. They're huge, huge. And so um, when you add up all those problems, and I have a few slides, but you guys also have a handout that I think tries to capture where we stand as a, as a national outlier in this country. Um, when you look at, when you add up all these debts, and you look at what Chicago households are on the hook for, Chicagoans are on the hook for far more in debts than those households in, in, in other cities, competitive cities. Um, we're an outlier. And we'll, we'll come back to this graphic in a different way, but it's a, it's a lot of debt. Number two, um, the city's credit rating. It's far, far worse than our competitive, our competitor cities. You know, sadly, uh, Chicago lies in junk with Detroit, and CPS is w rated even worse than Detroit. Now, these are Moody's numbers. They're not uh, S&P's numbers. They all have a, a different set. But this tells you how deep the problems are. Take population. We're also a national outlier there. 
Uh, not only did we lose 200,000 people uh, in the last decade, but we have lost population four years in a row. Our competitive cities, the large ones, are growing. And last, I might take you to property, property values. That's where people's nest eggs are. And if you look at Chicago, it's at the bottom of many, many cities. Uh, when you adjust for inflation, this graphic is not adjusted for inflation. Property values are negative in Chicago since 2000. So people's nest eggs are being hurt. When you add up all these things, you have to attack the structural problems. And so looking at one-year budgets and solving them, while necessary because that's just the way we live, it perpetuates the problem because we don't attack the real problems. At WirePoints, we take the position that Chicagoans are burdened by more debt than they can ever repay. If you take, if you take the amount of debt that Moody's has calculated which is all the Chicagoans share, all the overlapping debts of the city, CPS, Park District, Cook County, water reclamation, the state, retiree health care. When you add up all those debts based on Moody's calculations and the Chicagoans share of that, it's $150 billion. All right, let's, let's make that real. More than half of Chicagoans make less than 50000 a year. They'll never really be able to contribute to paying down that debt. And it would be unfair to ask them to do so. So when you take that $150 billion and you spread it over, those making, let's say, 75000 and more, it's nearly $400,000 in debt per household. Now, when they start to figure that out, when they see more and more tax hikes because we don't solve the actual problems, you can imagine a large share of them will flee. And the more that people leave, the stronger the spiral gets. I would argue that the politicians are, are, are failing on the long-term problems. And those two problems are really the cumulative overlapping debts and the collective bargaining laws that are so powerful on behalf of the unions that they help inflate those debts. So no, I think we need to stop looking at these budgets on a piecemeal basis. We need to get away from one government at a time, one year at a time, with all due respect to what Lori Lightfoot has had to go through, it was really interesting for her to ask for a state takeover from Governor Pritzker of the city pensions, and then only a few months later offer to the CTU what she, in her own words, says is the most generous, most lucrative contract in CTU history. If you're a Chicago resident, an ordinary Chicago resident, you're, you're shaking your head trying to figure out what's going on. And they should be. It's, it's really confusing. So uh, I want to come back to this later, but I think our, our system enables bad behavior. And in the Q&A, I, I hope to, to touch on that. Um, but what we need to do is move away from every year trying to patch a broken system. So here's what I think if it were done right, here's what it would look like. Mayor Lori Lightfoot would assemble a team. Uh, some of you in, in finance would know it as a workout team, a restructuring team. And that team would look at Chicago's debts and figure out how to reduce those debts so that Chicago could become competitive again in taxes, in services, and in the economy. And I don't mean the economy for the big Fortune 500 companies that keep moving here. I mean for, for the little guys, the entrepreneurs. I think that's what she would do. And then she would use her bully pulpit. She's the mayor of the third largest city in the country. And also, she can fight for all the Illinois cities that are struggling under the same problems from the same state laws that impact most of these cities. She would use her bully pulpit and demand a reform to the, pension constitu the, the constitutional protection of pensions. 
That has to change. There has to be an amendment. And number two, she would demand a rollback of the state's collective bargaining rules, laws. And I think after this CTU strike, she may be willing to do that. Um, Look, everything I'm talking about is really difficult. It's unlikely now, but it's inevitable. Uh, The trajectory that we're in is is really bad, and so we have to flip things around, and uh, we hope to see that happen sometime soon. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Ted. And uh, let's give our panelists a round of applause for all these wonderful thoughts and ideas. And now we're ready for Q&A. So if anybody has any question that they've written down on those blue forms. Ah, I see some over there on the far right. And anyone here in the center over here? Oh, and some over here. Very good. This is Shelby from our staff, and she's getting these questions. By the way, the uh, program and its comments will be available on podcast over WGN Radio. Um, we All of our programs are podcasts over WGN Radio. And if you ever want to ask a question of any of our panelists, speakers at our programs, you can email them into us, and we try to honor as many of those questions as we can. Uh, this is from John Tex. Mick, City Club member. He's with Baxter and Woodman. Um, I guess this is directed to you, Alderman. Alderman, thank you for your service. We hear about so many ideas for more revenue. What can you, the council, and the mayor do to reduce department and staff costs? Um... And a similar question came in from John Petrovsky with the BMO Harris Bank. We have a lot of questions from bankers today. (laughs) The top three ideas for meaningfully reducing expenses. So why don't you get us started, Scott, and then we'll turn to Carol and Ted. Sure. Um, The mayor's actually undertaken a a couple of issues that we've been talking about for about 10 years um, that I've been in office. Uh, One of them to reduce those costs is looking at Consolidating the administrative function, the HR functions of police, fire, and OEMC. When you look across the board at the dozens of different departments that we have, every department has their own IT department. Every department has their own HR group or administrative group. So one of the first ones that she tackled was merging OEMC uh, with fire and police administrative oversight so that you can cut out Um, large, uh, basically uh, uh, the excess there that um, is not needed. Now, putting police and fire and OEMC together I think is a good idea because they're kind of serving in the same uh, functional area. She's also reducing the number of police officers that would be sitting doing administrative work and she's going to put them back out on the street. Now, not all of them might go back out on the street. They might end up retiring but that's going to be about 164, I believe it was. Um, so that's one uh, immediate set that she's going after. They're reducing the number of overall vacancies where they've asked uh, departments to come in with zero-based budgeting and told them that if you do not need to hire this person or this position, then let's take it out of the budget for their, uh, essentially the first time in a while. Also merging uh, the Department of uh, Innovation Technology with 2FM or the facilities group And other cities have done this to basically uh, remove the multiple layers of IT that are in every department. 
and uh, pair it up with the facilities management. And there are people that I've met with over the years who look at facilities management starting to use technology instead of uh, really kind of doing it manually so that we can start uh, looking at our cost in terms of leasing, our cost in terms of individuals who are uh, doubling up on a lot of the, the staffing things that we need. So those are small savings up front um, in the millions, but I think in the long term it will help us reduce cost overall. Yeah, I'll add to that. We don't, as a rating agency, we don't recommend specific expenditure reductions, but just uh, from some of the reforms that the mayor has identified, our understanding is that the full savings that are expected over the long term aren't included in this budget. Um, in addition to just some of the reforms, whether it be workman's comp or overtime issues uh, moving forward, or just that if, if the city makes progress just on the economic development side, uh, whether it be improving uh, education outcomes or reducing violence in the system or rega- regarding uh, targeting certain neighborhoods to help retain the city's population and really work on these structural issues that Ted identified, I think over time, naturally, the city would realize more revenues and realize uh, expenditure reductions, but it's, it's, you, can't, you can't achieve all of those in one fiscal year. Okay, now we have a number of questions here. Ed, 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 oh, I'm add? sorry, Ted. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, I, I think those are all really good initiatives that, uh, that uh, Scott mentioned, Alderman mentioned. Um, but I think, I, I think probably have to look at this a little differently. And, and, and immediately to my mind, I, I think, holy cow, the Fireman's Fund is 18% funded. The Pension Fund is 18% funded. It literally is... I don't know, a stock market move away from, from insolvency. Uh, police fund about 23% funded. It's going to take a lot. If, if, well, and if we have a recession sometime soon, and maybe a stock market correction, what's going to happen to them? And so whatever we're doing in Chicago to save it, we've got to really be thinking bigger than that and faster than that. And so that's why, um, not, not to beat a dead horse, but I think that's why Mayor Lightfoot has to, has to go bigger and, and, and stronger on, on the pension reforms. Because if she doesn't, I don't know what's going to happen to the, to the you know, brave police and firemen that, that protect this city. And, and, and it's not just them, because then you can move another step to, to a lot of the people where those tax hikes that are being talked about. Uh, we just had record tax hikes under, under uh, Mayor Emanuel. And here we are. I, I will tell you this. If, if there are no reforms, Lori Lightfoot will end up hiking taxes more than Rahm Emanuel's record tax hikes. So it's going to take more than that. And, and I think, you know, if you look even further down, Chicago's not going to prosper until companies come here in, in, in a bigger way. And I don't mean the big Fortune 500. I mean the ones that, that create all the small mom-and-pop jobs. Uh, you've got to get rid of all that debt so that they are hungry to be here, want to be here, because it's a growing city, not a, not a city that threatens them with massive tax hikes in the future. Okay, I've got some questions here for each of you. Uh, Carol, this is for you. It's from uh, Grady McCroan, I think. Where are you at, Grady? Gray. Gray. Okay. Very good. Well, obviously you didn't get a good grade in printing or handwriting. That's okay. Fine. Just just calm down and take it easy, young man. Come back. How are the financial problems of Chicago 
compared to the financial problems of Detroit before its bankruptcy? Okay, so I, I think there are some key differences between Chicago and Detroit, and largely economic. Uh, I mean, we spoke to Chicago's population declines and some demographic issues, but in comparison to Detroit, who was rapidly losing its tax base, and it, it's just the economy is far different. And so I think the underpinnings of the city's ability to deal with its financial issues relative to Detroit's are a different story. So I think it really comes down to the the economy when separating the two. And, and, and I understand some of the points that Ted highlighted. I mean, certainly Chicago has a very deep overlapping debt and significant pension issues, but um, relative to not just Detroit, but you know, we'll often see the comparison of Illinois to Puerto Rico, just vastly different taxing base. Okay, thank you. Um, maybe this is for you, Alderman. It's from Bill Bowler. Um, does the city regularly benchmark against other comparable sized cities for manpower and services provided? Uh, so the city has started looking at manpower, for instance, in terms of the police department and how many people, how many officers do we need on patrol, how many officers do we need in the whole department, and how does that compare to other cities. And there have been other studies out there that looked at it that have been shared with the superintendent in this year or the past, and there, ha there was never really any movement on that. Um, we often shared uh, what L.A. was doing, what New York was doing with the mayors, and uh, just saw no movement. I think Mayor Lightfoot is looking to try to right-size some of these departments, especially the police department, to make sure that they're providing the services uh, not only at the level that they need to, but to make sure that uh, the department, you know, outside of settlements and judgment, is working in the right way to, um, to be staffed correctly throughout the city as well. Um, so I think uh, police is probably the biggest one. Uh, she is looking at along with the Inspector General, along with the Office of Financial Analysis, how we are uh, staffing each one of these departments and, and how that can be improved. Okay, thank you. Um, Ted, this is for you. It's from uh, Lise Spakapan. Lise, where are you? Right, right over there. <clears throat> That's okay. Thank you. Uh, here's her question, Ted. Uh, if the state and courts implement no change in law and we continue a current course approximately when will the pension liability begin to shrink due to tier two pension changes in Illinois the state of Illinois so tier two is very interesting for those of you who didn't follow tier two in, in 2011 January 1st we had a, a new for new employees, they got a, 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 a much less generous pension plan than the Tier 1, the previous uh, generation of workers. And the Tier 2, what's interesting about it is it is, in some cases, so unfavorable to the Tier 2 employees that there's a big risk that, well, there's many people hoping that because we went to Tier 2, if we just wait another 15, 20 years, we'll get out of our mess because finally all the Tier 1 guys will, gals will be gone and we'll be left with Tier 2. Uh, it's a very dangerous thing. Things are so deep right now in some of the funds. 
that you know, waiting around for that hopeful tier two to kick in is, is, is one of the problems we're having. That's why, again, we're back to that same thing of solving short-term problems and not the real problems. Um, so I think waiting for tier two is very dangerous. But there's another reason why it's even more dangerous. Uh, for those of you who are following the consolidation of local pensions recently, in there crept out something that everybody's been worried about, and that's a concern that the tier two benefits are not sufficiently generous enough that they may or have run afoul of uh, IRS rules. So imagine a situation where we've been waiting around on Tier 2 to kick in, but the laws, the laws come in and say, no, you can't stick with Tier 2. You're going to have to increase benefits for all those Tier 2 workers. Uh, I think we have to be very careful waiting around on Tier 2. Um, if you look at the numbers, right, by 2044 and 45 at the state level, everything will be fine again. We've been saying that for in the 12 years I've been back here in, in the area, things get worse every year. And things, by the way, if you look at the numbers, don't get any better for another five or six years. So I think we need to stop being hopeful of, of a, a reform that may end up being unwound at some point. Yeah, okay, thank you, Carol. I know you wanted to yeah. chime in. So uh, just to comment a bit on the pension situation, I think uh, the, the, any benefit from the Tier 2 would be farther out in the horizon when we look at the city or the state's pension amortization because they're, they're uh, basically u- because of the amortization methods they're using and because it's such a long time frame that the funds are actually what we, we call cash flow negative, which means that uh, they're, distribu- they're paying out more in benefits than the money going into the system. And actually, if you look at the actuarial projections, the liabilities don't actually begin to go down for a couple of decades, even though it's expected that you know, in the next, within the next 10 years, a majority of participants will be in Tier 2. So changing benefits for new hires takes a really long time to implement savings on the pension side. But I, I do also want to just comment on the low-funded ratios uh, that the while it's what we think is a weak actuarial funding that both the state and the city are using because it's really deferring costs into the future, uh, if they stick to the plan, we do expect that that will prevent an insolvency. And actually, when you get plans as low-funded as 18% because of how they're invested, um, and they're also cash-dependent, actually, they have less to lose in a recession than a well-funded plan. So we think that the likelihood of insolvency in the near term is probably pretty low, but costs will continue to escalate, and it will be decades before liabilities are reduced. Thank you, Carol. Scott, do you have any thoughts on that? Okay, then we'll move on to the next question. Thank you. This is a, refers to the city of Chicago. So, Scott, you're on deck. You're in the batter's box, actually. This is from uh, City Club member Bill Bergman. Bill, where are you? Right over there. He's with Truth and Accounting, you know, which is, some people say is an oxymoron. But how can the city of Chicago claim to balance its budget according to state law every year but also have a structural deficit every year. Well, uh, I think Ted touched on a little bit. You have to look at the broader issues of uh, not just the one-off, not just what happens year to year, but trying to look long-term. That's what this mayor's doing. Uh, You know, when we're looking at the STSC and the refinancing there, when you're looking at some of the structural changes that she's making, um, savings and efficiencies, I, I think these are issues that 
have been neglected for decades, if years, if not decades, and finally trying to address those issues in both in the short, midterm, and and then the long term is essential to trying to restructure uh, every department and sister agency, which is a longer uh, job that she's going to have to work on. Um, talking about the CHA, CTA, um, CPS, and uh, trying to pull all of them together and say, you know, what are what are the issues that we're having here um, in terms of our structural imbalances? When you look at what happens with Alderman, uh, as a side note, we have set aside funds every year for one point three million dollars, a very small amount. Those funds. Are, uh, we're asked to provide funds from that city-funded account to CPS, to the park district, sometimes to the CTA to pay for things that should be coming out of their budgets. What the mayor's trying to do is say, uh, let's be more open and transparent about how these budgets are, are being created, about where these funds are coming from. I'm, gi- I'm giving you a very small amount there, but we're talking about things like pension payments, we're talking about things like police officers and schools, and trying to put those, slot them into the areas that they are supposed to be, the budgets that they're supposed to be in, uh, I think is important to the long term, not just solvency of the city, but the structural efforts that she's trying to undertake. Those are going to take a few years, but again, it's seeing this for the first time is important. Ed, could I add one thing? Yes. Uh, What's important for everybody to understand, and, and my colleague Mark Glenn has been writing about this for years, is that when, when some, when in Illinois, when a government says the budget is balanced, it's never balanced. Uh, those, those costs, the costs that are in the budget are never the true costs. And to Bill's point, um, every year when it's balanced, what's really happening behind the scene is that we're accruing more debts because we're hiding those debts, and typically they're in the pensions but also in the retiree health. We're never paying what we should be paying, or we're never paying what the actuaries say we should be paying. And since we don't pay the full amount, guess what? Budgets are balanced over here, but we're accruing debts over there. So th- those budgets are never truly balanced, and, and nobody should believe it when they hear it. Sorry to be so pessimistic, but that's that's the reality. Thank you. Um, this is from uh, John Hammerschlag. John, where are you? He's back there. And John said he's been a member of City Club for many years. But, John, I don't think you were here in 1903 when Jane Adams and Professor Charles Merriam founded the City Club, but we're glad to have your support for these many, many years. His question, how would the city benefit, if at all, if half the number of alder persons would be eliminated? And his second question, any chance of it happening? So anybody want to deal with that? that. Scott will take that. (laughs) In the last redistricting, we thought it was a good opportunity to reduce the number of aldermen to 35. We actually bought the software, drafted our own plan. Uh, There were about 20 aldermen who looked at that and said that we would voluntarily reduce ourselves or push ourselves out of a job if we could get to 35. Uh, That didn't go over too well with the rest of the aldermen. Um, But there there have been efforts to do that. And when you look at the savings, if Uh, If we reduce down to 35, for instance, under our scenario, right now we represent about 54,000 people. Um, With redistricting, that will change a little bit. But if you go down to 35 or if you go down to 25, you're actually increasing the number of constituents that you have, the uh, geographic area that you have, and you would probably need to increase staff. So there is an offset there for reducing the number of aldermen, 
but then increasing the staff slightly as, as if you were a county commissioner or um, a state rep that have higher numbers. So the, there are some cost savings there, but uh, they're not uh, significant. Any comment from either of our other panelists on that? Okay. Ted, this is for you. It's from City Club member Greg B. Greg, where are you? Okay, thank you. Ted, could you give us some examples of how collective bargaining rules drive the debt? I can. I, thank you for asking that because it's something I wanted to come back to. Uh, I, I talked about how the laws and the politicians in Illinois are, are enabling the, these um, strikes and demands from the unions and, and what, what makes them so powerful. Well, you should understand that you know, Illinois, and there's a graphic there on the, on the piece of paper, Illinois is, is the only state of our neighbors who allows teachers to go on strike. Uh, Wisconsin doesn't. Uh, um, Iowa doesn't. Indiana doesn't. All our neighbors, they don't. We're just one of 12 states that allow strikes. And that emboldens, if you can imagine, right? I, I don't think I have to explain that. That's, it's almost become like standard operating mode for the CTU that every time there's a uh, contract negotiation, they strike. It's, we're, we're three for three right now in the last, in the last three um, negotiations. So that's one way. The other way is that for police and fire, they can't strike. It's illegal for, for public safety to strike. But what they get to do is have the right to demand to force arbitration. And if they're not happy with a, a contract from the city, uh, they can take it to an independent, unelected person for arbitration. And, you know, that makes life really difficult for a mayor. You know, we used to talk to the mayor in, in Rockford. Uh, always used to complain about that. Lori Lightfoot, you know, she mentioned, as I said before, she's given the most generous, lucrative offer to the CTU. But maybe she felt that that was her way of trying to keep them from striking. Now, unfortunately, it didn't work. But you see the powers they have. Uh, when you look at all the states across the country and you look at who's got the most restrictive collective bargaining laws, and by restrictive I mean against the taxpayer, against the ordinary resident. We are on one of the extreme ends. Places like Virginia don't even allow collective bargaining. It's against the law in, in Virginia. They're on the other extreme. But I would argue that if we moved to the middle of collective bargaining laws, it would save Illinois and Chicago billions of dollars because then the city officials would have a bit more power, taxpayers would have a bit more power, and the unions would have a little bit less. But uh, I think that's one of the big reforms that has to happen in Illinois. Okay. Um, Carol, Scott, do you want to comment on Ted's remarks? If not, okay, we'll move along. Uh, this is from City Club member Dwayne Deskins, who's a former federal and state prosecutor. He'd like to know, how is population growth, is it, how is that a key to economic growth? Carol? Yeah, happy to weigh in on, the, on that. So population growth uh, really uh, helps drive the tax base in that you've got more folks paying for more service, more paying for the services. I mean, we've seen that, um, you know, it's not in terms of just leveraging tax revenues. I don't really know if there's too much more to add there, but it is, Illinois is an outlier in terms of population loss, and so is the city. And so if it is able to recapture some of that, it, the losses haven't been precipitous. They've been gradual, and I think it's only been about four or five years 
uh, I think four years of consecutive losses. So it's something that I do think the city and the state could turn around. There's a lot of potential here. Um, and so that could reverse course and really benefit the city and the state. Okay. If, um, given that loss for four years, um, Ted, Alderman Wagaspak, any thoughts on how the city can increase that population growth? Yeah, I'll jump in there. Um, well, the mayor has uh, a plan to focus investment into parts of the city that have not had investment for decades. And I think this is a, a good strategy. Um, my ward, you know, we just talked a little bit about redistricting. Last, in the last redistricting, I was sitting at about 72,000 people um, when I was supposed to be at that 54,000. There was a lot of increase of uh, not just economic development, but uh, construction in the 32nd Ward, which is sort of the Bucktown, Wicker Park, Logan, Lakeview area. We want to see if we can uh, push development out into other neighborhoods so that you build up the tax base there so that um, seven wards are not carrying the bulk of the property tax um, in the city. Now, the way to do that, the way the mayor is doing that, is focusing TIF investment and structural investments, new funds that are coming out, uh, the Neighborhood Opportunity Fund, the Catalyst Fund, and saying, let's get those funds into commercial corridors and the other parts of the city to build up small businesses, to attract people to those areas. Um, there are other social issues that come with that, but I think she's focusing in the right area. You know, for a decade, or a decade I've been telling developers that come into my office and they say, we're building all around the city. We're building in Ravenswood, Bucktown, Logan Square. And I kind of, well, you're missing out on a few neighborhoods. Um, they have to get out and build in those areas. But that requires making these other changes in each one of the departments to ease the burden on small businesses, on the other businesses coming into the city, giving them opportunity to build up those commercial corridors, and then building up those neighborhoods so that there's economic opportunity for a lot of those other wards throughout the city. Um, I think the mayor is going to be rolling out more on those economic initiatives, but it's important to build that tax base so that, again, we're, all, we're not focused on just a handful of wards that provide that property tax um, every year, but to, to spread it out and, and spread the wealth at the same time. Thank you. Uh, Ted? Yeah, I'd love to add. Um, those are all good initiatives, and I think there's just there's so many things that can be done to attract people. But if I go back to what I said earlier about the amount of outstanding debt, Pretend you're somebody looking to, to move to a different city because you're looking for a, a new and better job. You want to come to Chicago. Come on. This is, you know, you go to the loop and you see, or you, right here and you see how hot it is and how, how active it is. But the minute you learn that um, not only are, you know, are, are financial things a mess, but that you might see massive tax hikes in your next 10 and 15 years and you're relatively wealthy and there's not just the Chicago problems, but the progressive tax proposals coming out of, out of Springfield. I mean, are you really, you know, there's other choices. You know, this is a big country, and, and many of the cities are thriving. So until you solve this debt issue, and until, until I think people like Lori Lightfoot and Governor Pritzker say, we're solving this problem, we're going to address it in a real way, not in a kick-the-can type way. Those, those don't work. People are smarter than that. Until we stop growing these pension debts and, and, and the pension system as we know it and, and do some reforms, there's no reason for people to come here. So the way to do it is to send the message, and let the nation know we're changing. We've oh. looked at data across states and cities, and it isn't really necessarily uh, definitive that tax policy is what affects population shifts. The data that we've seen for Illinois, I mean, that, that might be a factor, 
but it's more of weather. <laughs> you look at the weather outside today, and, and uh, I, really, I think it's kind of economic opportunities, and uh, really, um, just within the neighborhoods in, in Chicago, and, and whether it be violence, education, mm-hmm. job opportunities that are drive, uh, ha- having people leave more than the evidence being weighted on the tax side. But I would agree that certainly uncertainty around it, surrounding the fiscal future doesn't help the situation. Okay, if, thank you. Thank you. I could, I'd like to sure. get in a couple more sure, questions, sure. if I sure. could, Ted. Um, this is another banker from Northern Trust, Brian Bianchi. Um, with longtime Chicago citizens being driven from their homes due to dramatically rising property and other taxes, why are Democratic, with a small d, why are Democratic politicians still so afraid to call out the unsustainable nature of pension obligations? Anybody care to deal with that question? Well, uh, I think... um Small d, right? Small d. Yeah. So it covers ours also. Yeah. I think, uh, I think people have looked at those pension obligations. There's been discussions on the table. I, I don't think it all works in this vacuum where we're not having these discussions. Um, we've, we've looked over the years at um, collective bargaining agreements. How do we work together with the unions to reduce some of the burden that's been built up over the years? When... Um, when we had the uh, possibility of the Olympics, there, if you remember, there was a, an agreement, a 10-year agreement signed with almost all of the unions in the city. They came back to the table when that 10-year contract expired, and that's through the CFL. And they actually sat down and figured out, how do we change the work rules? How do we work together with the mayor? And this was Mayor Emanuel. And they sat down and, and did a lot of restructuring of how each one of the labor unions was working in the city. And they continue to do that. So they look for ways to reduce the burden on the city. Um, you know, perhaps when we look at what's happening today over the last uh, couple weeks, there's a lot of fight and um, back and forth on those issues. But for the most part, I think the CFL has done a good job of coming back to the table and saying, um, maybe not to the extent I think that Ted is talking about, but how do we make some of these structural changes so that we're trying to be a little bit more fair to the city instead of having those contracts that we saw for something like the Olympics. Okay, I have two last questions. One I think you may have addressed already. This is from Lori Green. Lori, where are you? Lori Glenn. Lori Glenn. I'm sorry, Lori. I apologize. Um, She's talking about the $600 million police lawsuits that you mentioned. Um, And you said a task force is being set up to study this? Or Her question is basically, how will the city, the mayor... The council deal with this issue. How do we address the city deficit? It's really what Carol was saying, which is if we don't have jobs in the communities, if we don't have investment in the neighborhoods, if we don't do something to address the crime and violence that we are, you know, as I think the mayor is trying to. um, But I just want to say, if we how how are we as a city going to address what we call the peace deficit? At this time, if we don't address that, how do we address the overall bringing people back into our communities? Well, I think uh, we definitely have to have safer communities across the city, and that is a commitment that the mayor has made. Um, When I first spoke to her when she was running for office, that was one of the first things she was talking about. And very few people were talking about 
they were talking about, yes, we have a violence problem, but let's throw more police at it. That's not always the solution. And we've seen that from the $600 million in settlements and judgments we've had with police officers just in the ten, last 10 years. And it's probably more than that if you include the attorney's fees. So, um, and, and that runs into the probably the couple hundred million mark. But um, also uh, having to use the, the law department and sucking away all of their time running into issues with the Civil Rights Division. So there's a lot, a lot of pieces to that. But I think, again, focusing on investments in those neighborhoods and black and brown communities that have been disinvested in for, for decades, that we create economic segregation when we do deals like Lincoln Yards that continue to pull away the funds that I think could be put into those areas. Um, those are things she's directly addressing, trying to look at different ways of approaching investment in those communities. She knows that we have to train our police officers in a different way. We, we are going to have this police and fire academy. It's not just police academy, but fire academy as well. Other cities have modern uh, facilities set up, but they also have more modern training. We're doing crisis intervention training. So when I'm listening to uh, the police radio and I hear who is going out on a uh, crisis intervention for somebody who might be trying to commit suicide or jumping off a bridge, whatever it might be, these are critical uh, moments where the police have to be well trained and they never have been in the past or some uh, as we saw with the Laquan McDonald situation had our officers been correctly trained we might not have run into that issue but we are hemorrhaging tens of millions of dollars a year I think this year we might be a little over 80 million dollars for settlements again and with we had no end in sight several years ago now we are directly addressing these issues with training with police officers making sure that they're pairing up with community organizations that are dealing with issues of violence in the neighborhoods the mayor has committed a few million dollars to violence reduction but it also comes by making sure we're investing in our schools making sure we're investing in those commercial corridors so um, i understand that you know many aldermen are upset that she has increased the staff in her uh, mayor's office, but that is by she's trying to centralize some of these uh, departments' policy functions by pulling in a public safety officer, pulling in a chief risk officer, and saying, I want you all working on this issue from a centralized location instead of working off in your little departments and having your own little successes, but not working as a whole. And I think this is a much larger issue than can be tackled in one year, but to see again a mayor addressing it comprehensively with a with a long-term plan is important for the city and then again you can build up um, ec economically in these other areas you can end some of the economic segregation that has really hurt the cities for decades and having a mayor the first black woman mayor in the history of the city of tackling this issue is one of the best things i've seen uh, in my lifetime thank you scott and uh, thank you for that question laurie glenn um thank our panelists Ladies and gentlemen, let's give them a big round of applause.